The following sermon, entitled Justification in the Final Judgment, was preached on the morning of April 30th, 2023, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. We read God's Word this morning from two different places. First, Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, and then Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, both of which describe for us the final judgment at the end of all things. Matthew chapter 25, beginning at verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory. And before Him shall be gathered all nations, and He shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. He shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was in hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was prison, I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee, and hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee, a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, insomuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in, naked, and ye clothed me not, sick and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they answer, then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not, to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Let's now turn to Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Revelation 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Yet I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. 
And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. It's in connection with these passages of Scripture that we consider Lord's Day 24 of the Heidelberg Catechism. This is found in the back of our songbooks. In page 13, Lord's Day 24 of the Heidelberg Catechism. But why cannot our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? Because that the righteousness which can be approved of before the tribunal of God must be absolutely perfect and in all respects conformable to the divine law and also that our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. What? Do not our good works merit which yet God will reward in this and in a future life? This reward is not of merit, but of grace. But doth not this doctrine make men careless and profane? By no means. For it is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. Beloved congregation, as we come to Lord's Day 24 of the Heidelberg Catechism this morning, we must recognize that this is really an extension of Lord's Day 23 and the whole truth concerning our justification by faith. The beginning of Lord's Day 23, that is question and answer 59, asks, but what doth it profit thee now that thou believest all this? And the all this there is referring to everything taught in the Apostles' Creed as explained by the Heidelberg Catechism so that Lord's Day 23 is drawing the conclusion to all of the foregoing Lord's Days concerning the Apostles' Creed. What is the profit of believing all that? And the answer given is that I am righteous in Christ before God. And with that answer, the Catechism introduces the truth of our justification. And Lord's Day 23 is the primary treatment of that truth. Lord's Day 23, which we considered last week, explains the meaning, the significance of our justification, and in addition, explains the role of faith as the sole instrument in our justification. Lord's Day 24, which we consider this morning, is a continuation of that. Only Lord's Day 24 now answers various objections that are raised against the truth of Justification by faith alone. Because Lord's Day 23, the previous Lord's Day, taught very clearly that we are not justified because of any works that we have performed. The Catechism taught us in the middle of answer 60 that God, without any merit of mine, but only of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. So we're justified without our works apart from our law-keeping. But now in the history of the church, there have been various objections that are raised against that truth. 
Well, what about this? And well, what about that? And with every one of those questions, there's an attempt to bring our good works into the equation of what makes us right with our God. Lord's Day 24 answers those objections and thus serves as a defense of the truth of justification by faith alone. Last time, when we considered Lord's Day 24, we split it up into three sermons. One sermon on each of the three questions and answers. And we did so to give ourselves the opportunity to dig deeper into this Lord's Day and to address a number of errors, false doctrine that have plagued the church and some of which had even begun to creep into our own denomination. But even with three full sermons on this one Lord's Day, last time we considered it, there were still things that we did not have time to cover. There were still things that I wanted to treat but felt could not be fit into the sermons that we had last time. And one of them in particular is the error concerning our justification specifically at the final judgment. And that's what we want to focus on, therefore, this time through the Heidelberg Catechism. For the sake of the defense and preservation of the truth, for the sake of warning this flock of uh, an error that's very prevalent in the broader church world around us, even in the broader Reformed and Presbyterian communities around us, and especially for the sake of our own comfort and assurance. We want to address an error this morning. The error that says, even if we're justified by faith alone in this life, in the last day, at the final judgment, then our works will be a part of the equation of what makes us right, acceptable before God. The purpose of this sermon is to show that that is an unbiblical view and to set forth the proper understanding of what will take place on that day. So the theme for this morning's sermon is justification in the final judgment. First, an error rejected. Second, the truth affirmed. And then third, the motivation given. Justification in the final judgment. An error rejected. The truth affirmed. The motivation given. Before we can really get into the error concerning justification in the final judgment, we first have to lay the biblical foundation concerning the final judgment. And the two passages of Scripture that teach us about the final judgment most clearly and most fully are the two that we read this morning, Matthew 25 and Revelation 20. Both of which teach us that Christ, on behalf of God, will be the judge in that last day. In Matthew chapter 25, for example, we read at the beginning of the Scripture reading, verse 31, when the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory. Same truth taught in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne in Him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. 
Both of these passages make clear that in that last day, at the final judgment, Christ will be the judge. And oh, how glorious He will appear. He will be seated there in all of His splendor, in all of His majesty. Very unlike how He appeared toward the very end of His life the first time He came. Toward the end of the life, He was the one standing before the judges of this earth. At the end of His life, He was the one who was the criminal hanging on a cross. But at the last day, He will be the judge. Seated upon His throne and all men will stand before Him as sinners. And indeed, every last person who has ever been born, who has ever lived upon this earth, and whoever will live upon this earth will appear before this judge. That's embedded into these two passages. Matthew 25 verse 32 says, Before Him shall be gathered all nations, that is, every man and woman from every nation, tribe, and tongue of the whole earth. And that includes all those who died before His coming. It's evident from what we read in Revelation 20, verse 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. Verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. The death and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged. So that prior to this final judgment will be that final resurrection, both of the the wicked and the righteous, and in our resurrected bodies, all men will stand before Jesus Christ. And as he sits there, he will have two different books open in front of him. Really a set of books and then another book. And that comes out from Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. So first we read of books, plural. And it's clear from what follows that these books are a record of everything that any one of us has ever done. Every deed, every word, every thought, every desire. God has a perfect record of them all. And Christ will have that book, those books, open before Him. But He will also have a book singular, which is identified as the book of life. That is, the book that has a list of names to whom God has given life and will give life. This is a list of every one of His elect children saved in and through Jesus Christ. With those two books in front of Him, open before Him, Christ the Judge will render His verdict and give a corresponding sentence. That is, to each and every single person, He will either declare guilty or righteous. And to all those He to all those he declares guilty, He will say, you now deserve death. That will be their sentence. And to all those whom He declares righteous, He will say you have the right to eternal life. 
There will be a separation that takes place between the guilty and the righteous. That's clear from Matthew chapter 25, verse 32 and following. The second half of 32, and he shall separate them one from another as a sheep divideth his goats. Excuse me, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Having done that, he will then send them to their everlasting states. To the righteous, he will say, as he does in verse 34, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And to the wicked, he will say what he does in verse 41, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, be prepared for the devil and his angels. That very briefly is what Scripture teaches us about the final judgment. Now the question becomes, what does any of this have to do with Lord's Day 24? What does any of this have to do with our justification? The answer is there's a connection between our justification and this final judgment that we just described. Because you see, our justification is what we call a forensic act. And by that word forensic, we simply mean something that relates to a court of law. And the catechism students will remember that when we go over justification in catechism, we say what we need to think about when we hear that term is a courtroom setting with a judge and his gavel pronouncing some verdict in a corresponding sentence. Justification is a forensic concept, a courtroom concept. And so is the final judgment. Because at the final judgment, there's going to be the judge, Jesus Christ. And all men will appear before Him as sinners. And He's going to render a verdict. He's going to issue sentences so that the final judgment is a forensic matter. And that then connects the two. So that there's a sense in which the child of God will be justified at the final judgment. Declared to be righteous and given the right to eternal life. And now in the course of the sermon, we're going to have to explain very carefully what we mean by that. But what we want to start with is the wrong view concerning our justification in the final judgment. So now we come to the error itself. And that error makes a... separates really, makes a difference between our justification in this life and our justification at the final day. And specifically regarding our justification in the final judgment, the error of many in the broader church world around us is that our works, our good works as believers will be a part of what makes us right, acceptable before God on that day. And they appeal to these very passages. They appeal to Matthew chapter 25 and say, look at what Christ says to His people. After He's told them in verse 34, Come ye blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Christ then says to them, For I was hungered, and ye gave Me meat. I was thirsty and ye gave Me drink. I was a stranger and ye took Me in. And so on. Christ is appealing to our good works. Therefore, our good works, they say, 
must be a part of the reason we receive that inheritance. And then they appeal to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20, the end of verse 12, which says the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And then again, the same thing in verse at the end of verse 13. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And they take that phrase, according to their works, and say, see, in some sense, our justification in the last day will be based on what we have done. And then they bolster their position by appealing to other passages. Passages such as Romans chapter 2, verse 13, where we read, For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. Justified in the future tense. Who will be justified? The doers of the law. Therefore, it's our good deeds, they say, that are a part of the reason we're justified on that last day. Another passage they appeal to is James chapter 2, verse 24. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. And they would argue that James here, like the Apostle Paul, is talking about justification in that forensic sense of the word, in that legal setting, that our good works are part of what make us right with God. That's the error. Who teaches this? Well, there are many who teach this. And the most outstanding example is obviously the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church appeals to these very passages to say that our final justification is based on the believer's good works. And now to be clear, they do not, their error is not limited to just final justification because really they use these passages as proof that justification in this life is also uh, based in some small way <clears throat> upon our good works. So that they're smuggling good works into justification in this life too. But the error also applies to justification at the end. So that for example, in the Council of Trent, we read this, and this is going to be a negative statement because they're pronouncing anyone who believes this, let him be anathema, let him be accursed. Quote, or that said that the said justified by the good works which he performs do not truly merit eternal life and the attainment of eternal life and also an increase of glory. Let him be anathema, end quote. So that their clear view is that our good works do merit eternal life and the attainment of eternal life and the increase of glory. That's their view. And the, and the implication of their view is that the child of God can have no certainty regarding the outcome of the final judgment. The implication is that one cannot be sure of what the verdict will be on that day so that one lives really in fear of that day because for the vast majority, the best they can expect is to be sentenced to purgatory. The Roman Catholic Church teaches this error. So also does do all the proponents of what is called the federal vision. That is a term that we are familiar with. This is a movement that crept up in the last 20 to 30 years that calls itself 
reformed and thus has influenced many reformed and Presbyterian denominations. They too teach that our final justification is based on our works. And now they have errors regarding our initial justification too. And the errors are even broader than just their view concerning justification. So let's not suppose that the one thing we're mentioning concerning the federal vision is the the whole of that heresy, but we're trying to have a specific focus to this sermon. That error of theirs comes out in their writings. For example, one proponent wrote this, quote, works of faith-filled obedience in a secondary way cause our final justification and salvation. Works are the means through which we come into possession of eternal life. End quote. So according to them, our works are either causal or instrumental for receiving eternal life in, our, in the final judgment. Same author goes on to say, quote, faith is the sole instrument of initial justification But faith comes to be perfected by good works. At the last day, faith and works will be one and the same. Distinguishable, yes, but separable, no. End quote. Then he goes on to appeal to that very language of judged according to works. And he says that means we'll be judged because of those works, on the basis of those works. So this is the error of the federal vision. And now, to give a third example, and here I will be so bold as to mention a name, this is the error of John Piper. I bring him up because I know he is read in our circles. And to be clear, there is much that he has written that's profitable. I myself have profited from reading his writings. But if we are going to read him or listen to him, it must be very clear that our differences are not just only on the matter of infant baptism. But John Piper has a flawed view concerning our final salvation. For John Piper would say, we're justified by faith alone in this life, but our final salvation, he has in view these passages, is not by faith only. But our works are conditions that we must perform in order to be given heaven and life with our God. So the error is to make a distinction between what we might call initial justification or justification in time and final justification. And in some cases, really, they're putting works into both places. That's the Roman Catholic Church and the federal vision. But the main thing we're focused on is this idea that especially in that last day, especially at the final judgment, our works will be a part of what make us right before God. And as as a Reformed church that's committed to the truth of God's Word, we must reject this error. Because it's not in harmony with Scripture. It's not even in harmony with these very passages. Let's go back to each of the passages that they appeal to and see how their view does not fit with them. Matthew chapter 25, they say, well, look, Christ appeals to the, the good works of the believers, but... Did you notice that takes place after the separation has already happened? 
before Christ ever mentions anything that any one of us have done, the verdict's already been rendered. Verse 32, And he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. It's already been decided. Who's going to heaven? Who's going to hell? And what is more, when he comes to address those who are coming to heaven, how does he speak to them? Verse 34, Then the king shall say unto them on his right hand, Come ye, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is an inheritance. An inheritance is not something we earn, but it's given to us as those who are as adopted sons and daughters, and we're adopted as those who are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And what is more, he speaks of this as being prepared for you from the foundation of the world before we were ever born, before any one of us did any good or evil, it was determined that we would be given this inheritance. So this is not teaching that our good works are part of the, equa- the equation on that last day. Nor is that the teaching of Revelation chapter 20. Because while it's true, it says that every man shall be judged according to their works, we must see that the Spirit is being very deliberate, very careful in the specific language that He uses there. The Spirit did not inspire John to write because of His good works or on the basis of His works, but according to. The judgment will be in harmony with, consistent with His works. And we'll explain what that means later on. But for now, we note the the specific language. But the main thing here is don't forget about the other book. He has the books, plural, open all of our deeds. But the main one is the book, singular. The book of life. So that verse 15 says, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. What matters is that your name has been written in that book as one of God's elect, as one of His blood-bought sheep who has been given the right to life on the basis of Christ's saving work. But what about Romans 2, verse 13? Well, if we look at the context of Romans 2, verse 13, it becomes very clear that Romans 2, verse 13 is a hypothetical statement. If one would be justified by his works, it'd have to be that he kept the law perfectly. That's the only way to understand that phrase as a hypothetical statement because otherwise it would contradict everything else the Apostle Paul has to say in the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. For example, Romans 3, verse 28, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. And what is more, when in chapter 2, verse 13, that was there was that statement about those that do the law of God, it It's in contrast to those who hear it. And what Paul is putting his finger on is the mentality of many of the Jews who thought, well, because we're Jews, because we've been given the law of God, that means we're God's children. We're sons of Abraham. Therefore, we're going to go to heaven. And he's saying it's not just having the law. It's not just hearing the law that makes you right, but it's the perfect obedience to the law and not one of us can do that. 
And therefore, we need Christ to do it on our behalf. And as for James chapter 2, it's clear from the context that Paul, that James is not speaking of justification in the same sense that Paul does in his epistles. He does not have our forensic justification in view, but it's clear he's talking about that which demonstrates, that which proves. James 2, verse 18, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. So that that word, I'm going to show you something. I'm going to demonstrate it. I'm going to prove it. Governs what follows. Now admittedly, there's a question even among orthodox theologians, what's being proven there? John Calvin would say our works are the demonstration that we are justified, right with God. The other view that I've come to prefer is that what's being demonstrated is a man's claim to have faith so that the genuineness of a man's faith is what's in view and our good works justify in the sense of vindicate our claim to be true that we have saving faith. But either way, it's not talking about forensic justification. And so when we consider final justification, it means the truth of question answer 62 of the Heidelberg Catechism applies as much to final justification in the final judgment as it does to justification by faith in this life. Question answer 62 asks, but why cannot our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? You'll notice that the starting point is that they are not even a small part. That's the conclusion from the previous Lord's Day. And now the question is simply, why not? Give us an explanation. And the answer on the one hand is because of what God requires. The answer begins, because that the righteousness which can be approved of before the tribunal of God must be absolutely perfect and in all respects conformable to the divine law. Galatians 3 verse 10 teaches us, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. If you want to be justified on the basis of your own law keeping, you must continue in all things written in the book of the law. That is, Every moment, keeping God's law perfectly, and not one of us can meet that standard. That's what God requires. And what is more, there's the consideration of even our very best works, what we produce, and that's what is in view in the second half of answer 62, and also that our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. The very best deeds that we perform have sin attached to them, sin connected to them, so that the child of God may very well perform a good work, but there was a sinful motive standing behind it. Or there was sinful pride that came along with it. Look what I've done. And now if we were to take that work and try to bring it with us, when we stand before Jesus Christ at the final judgment, even if it is indeed a good work, the presence of sin attached to it would be sufficient to disqualify us from being given the right to enter into eternal glory. 
So it's not true that at the final judgment, when we stand before Christ, that we will be justified in part because of our good works. That's the error that we must reject. But what then is the truth of God's Word on this matter? We need to affirm that. And the truth of Scripture is that both in this life and at the final judgment, we are justified on the basis of Christ's work by faith alone. We're justified on the basis of Christ's work alone. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. That's the teaching of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For He hath made Him, God hath made His Son, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He was made sin for us. That is, He took our sins upon Himself, but then what is more, we're told that we are made righteous in Him. That is, righteous in Christ with His righteousness being given to us. This is the teaching of Philippians 3, verse 9, where Paul says, "...and be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness." which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Paul says, I don't want to be found with my own righteousness, with my own law-keeping. But I want to be found in Christ with the righteousness that comes from Him to me by faith. And This is the teaching of 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not, And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And He is the propitiation for our sins. He's our propitiation. He makes satisfaction of God's justice for our sins. But He's also Jesus Christ, the righteous, because He fulfilled all righteousness for us. And it's on the basis of these passages and many others that we believe that we are justified on the basis of Christ's saving work alone. That's the only ground, the only reason for our justification. And that applies to justification in time, in this life, and to justification at the last day. And what is more, in both cases, we're justified by faith alone. And here we hardly need to go to various passages that prove this because we're so familiar with that language that we're justified by faith. That's the language of Scripture. It's saying faith is the instrument in our justification. It's the vessel with which we receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And very importantly, in our justification, faith is entirely receptive. That is, in our justification, we do not look at faith as that which, as in light of what it produces, of the the works that flow out of faith. But in our justification, we view faith by itself, a bare faith, a naked faith, as the Reformers sometimes refer to it, so that The language of John Calvin is that faith is the empty hand of the soul. An empty hand is a hand that doesn't have anything in it. We're not bringing anything to God. Here, you take this and I'll take that. No, empty. 
held out simply to receive. That's how faith functions in our justification. And now again, the main point we're making this morning in this sermon is that applies not only in this life, not just when we believe in Jesus Christ, but at the final judgment. It's not the case that in this life, faith looks away from itself and looks entirely to Christ, but then on the last day, faith is going to look to Christ, but then bring along with it its works. No! But both then, both now and then, faith rests entirely in Jesus Christ. And now what all this shows us is that when we speak of our justification, whether in this life, that initial justification, or justification at the last day, there's no fundamental difference. It's really the exact same thing. And now we come back to what we said earlier. Yes, these truths are connected. And yes, there's a sense in which we are justified at the last day. But we must not make a a sharp contrast between the two. We must not separate the two as two different acts of God because the reality is it's the same verdict. It's the same declaration. That's true because of the very nature of justification. Justification is a once for all act of God. It's an indivisible act that is never repeated. So that once God declares us righteous, we are forever righteous. There's nothing we can do to forfeit the state of our justification. Not even our greatest sins, child of God. Change our legal standing, our legal status before our God. Now saying that and making a strong point about that does not take away from the fact that there's a sense in which that verdict can be there can be a renewed application of that verdict. Because that is true. When we sin, we once again experience the guilt of sin. We experience the shame of our sin. By faith, we go to God confessing our sin before Him, seeking forgiveness, and God forgives our sins. And that forgiveness can be understood in terms of a renewed application of the verdict of our justification. God saying to our souls again, you are not guilty. But instead, you are righteous. But that's different than saying, He justifies me again and again and again and again. And I have to be justified a thousand times over in my life. It's a once for all thing. But there is a renewed application of it to the child of God who looks to Christ by faith when he's sorry for his sin. And that then helps us understand what's going to happen at the end in the last day at the final judgment. There is a sense in which we will be justified on that day. Declared righteous and given the right to life. But it's not a totally different justification We deny this idea of a two-stage justification. Justification in this life, justification at the final judgment. And there's a difference between how the two work. We deny that. And child of God, if you ever hear someone or read someone trying to make that argument that look, 
There's one way that we're saved in this life. There's one way that we're justified in this life. But then at the last day, there's a, a slight twist on it. There's a change. Red flag. Let a red flag immediately pop up in your mind and say, I need to be careful here. Because there's no fundamental difference. But instead what happens is God will pronounce that verdict one last time. And the only small difference is now it's public. Now it's for all to hear. We're justified in God's own courtroom, in His forum as it were, and that declaration is delivered to our own consciousness in the form of our own souls. That's justification in this life. I know that by faith I'm right with God. I'm accepted because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. The only distinction at the final judgment is now He declares it for all to hear. Before all nations who are gathered there, He will say, not guilty, but righteous. With the spotless righteousness of Jesus Christ Himself. But what about our good works? What about these passages though? What about Christ saying, come inherit the kingdom that's been prepared for you and then talking about all the ways that believers served Him? And what about Revelation chapter 20 which speaks of us being judged according to our works? How are we to understand those passages though? What those passages are teaching us is that in the final judgment, Christ Himself will appeal to our good works as the confirming evidence that His judgment is right. That is, Christ Himself will hold up our good works to show, to demonstrate, to prove that we are those for whom He died. The basis, the ground, the reason for our justification on that last day, entirely Christ's saving work. But that judgment will be, will accord with, will be in harmony with, will be consistent with our good works so that Christ Himself, not the believer, Christ Himself will be able to appeal to them as confirming evidence, these are My sheep. They are My sheep because they were chosen in eternity. They are My sheep because I purchased them by My own blood. And now the evidence that takes away any doubt to any who would challenge His judgment, no one's going to challenge His judgment as they stand before Him on His great white throne. But if anyone even dared to think the thought, this isn't right, this isn't fair, Christ would be able to say, look at My work of grace in them. Look at what I've accomplished by My Spirit working in them the willing and the doing of a, a life of good works. I said unto My sheep, Come. And they followed me. And that's the evidence 
that this judgment is just and right. That means our works are not a part of the equation of what makes us right with God on that day. It's by it's on the basis of Christ's saving work alone, by faith alone. And do you see the comfort and assurance that this brings? Imagine if you had to stand there apart from knowing this. Because we will all stand before Christ. The great judge seated upon that white throne in all of His splendor, in all of His glory, in all of His majesty. Apart from this truth, the thought of that would be utterly terrifying. Who could ever go into that day thinking, I have done enough? Not me. But the good news of the Gospel is that it's not based on what I've done. And therefore, when I think about the final judgment, I need not be afraid. We need not worry. We need not think, have I been faithful enough? Have I reached that minimum threshold of the number of good works that is required? Is my holiness sufficient? We don't have to worry about that. Because it's not based on anything we've done. Christ is not going to ask us to to hand in our good deeds. He's not going to require us to to produce uh, enough repentance or enough faith or anything. But it's based entirely on His work. So that already now, we know what's coming. We already know the outcome, the verdict. Because He's already told us. He's already declared to our soul in this life, you're not guilty, child of God. But you're righteous with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And He doesn't change His verdict. He doesn't change the standard at the last day. It's the same verdict pronounced one last time. And therefore, we can go look forward to that day. Knowing that He will say to us, Come. Come, ye blessed of God. Receive your inheritance, which has been prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. And now does that thought not make you want to serve Him? It does. But you see, it's this truth that gives us motivation to serve this God. And it's important that we establish that there is motivation given because of the charge that's raised against this truth. There's the charge that's raised against us that's embedded into question and answer 63, for example. 64 rather. But doth not this doctrine make men careless and profane? Behind that is the thinking of those who think 
that in the final judgment, at the last day, our works are going to be a part of the equation. And we need to teach that because that's what's going to motivate us in this life to live a life of obedience. And if you take away that aspect of the final judgment, well, there's no more motivation then. There's no reason to strive diligently to be zealous for a life of good works. And they go so far as to say if you strip away that motivation, you give reason, men and women reason to live however they want. That's the language, that's the point of that language. But doth not this doctrine make men careless and profane? And we say, no. By no means. But rather, it's this doctrine alone that gives us the true motivation, thankfulness, even as the catechism alludes to it, for it's impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. Gratitude. That's the one true motivation because if we had to earn our way into heaven, we would labor out of fear. We would serve God like the Israelites served their Egyptian taskmasters. But that's not the type of service that is pleasing to our God. God does not want us to serve Him as slaves out of fear, but He wants us to serve Him as children out of love. And I trust you see the difference between serving Him as slaves out of fear and as children out of love. It's the latter that God that is pleasing to our God. And thus God Himself showers us with His own love. And He's demonstrated that love in the giving of His Son to die on the cross to be both our propitiation and our righteousness so that we might be right with God on the basis of Christ's saving work alone. That's our motive. May God work that in our hearts to serve Him out of love for all that He has done for us. May God grant that. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank Thee for this glorious Gospel that we are justified both now and forever. Not because of anything that we have done or will do, but solely because of what Christ has done for us. Comfort us and assure us with this truth. And at the same time, fill our hearts with a love for this truth that makes us ready and willing to defend it against all errors and attacks upon it. Hear this prayer for Christ's sake. Amen.